Hello and welcome to Heilman and Haver, Seattle's number one stage and screen podcast, coming to you from Casa de Quinn and Eleven Eleven Studios on the shores of beautiful Puget Sound. I'm Matt Haver. And I'm Greg Heilman. We're two local actors looking to hone our craft by exploring the best in the Pacific Northwest theater scene and on the big screen. Since 2020, we've been bringing you entertainment news and views, celebrating classic Hollywood, mixing cocktails with a Tinseltown twist, interviewing talented local actors and directors, and chatting with industry experts from L.A. to Broadway to the U.K. Welcome to episode 73. This week, we're pleased to welcome writer, lecturer, historian, researcher, and accomplished author Richard Berrios back to the show. We last spoke with Richard on episode 54 and 55 about classic movie musicals, what he calls, quote, a fabulous and fascinating, if sometimes peculiar, body of work, unquote. That it is. Uh, well, Richard should know he's the author of Must See Musicals, 50 show-stopping movies we can't forget, and West Side Story, The Jets, The Sharks, and The Making of a Classic for Turner Classic Movies. Screened out, playing gay in Hollywood, from Edison to Stonewall, Dangerous Rhythm, Why Movie Musicals Matter, and A Song in the Dark, The Birth of the Musical Film, which was awarded the Theater Library Association Prize. Richard has lectured extensively, co-hosted the Screened Out series on Turner Classic Movies, appeared in many film and television documentaries in the United States, Great Britain, and Japan, and served as audio commentator for numerous DVD and Blu-ray releases, including State Fair and South Pacific. The publication date for his latest book from Oxford University Press is officially four days away, April 25th, but you can find it now everywhere fine books are sold and linked in our show notes. On Marilyn Monroe, an opinionated guide, looks beyond the ballyhoo and legend at Monroe's best-known films, and some that even today remain obscure. Besides her films, it also addresses the work she did on television and the stage, as well as her underrated abilities as a vocalist. We're excited to learn more about all of it. Richard joins us now from his home in New Jersey. Welcome to the show, Richard. Welcome. Thank you. It is a pleasure to be here again. Again. Good to have you back. Absolutely. So uh, as we prep for this show, I did a little... A little cursory search online, one of my favorite sites, bookshop.org. And uh, your book is there. Congratulations again. And uh, I get 86 other results. So we think about the number of words that have been dedicated to Marilyn Monroe uh, during her lifetime, and especially since her untimely death in 62. It's staggering to think about how many column inches have been devoted to her life. So tell us. Why another book about Marilyn, and why now? Well, first, uh, 86 is an extremely low number because by some estimates, the total number of books, not articles, but actual books, is somewhere around 1,000, which is just you know mind, mind-boggling. It's also I, a tribute, I think, to the fascination that she held before her death, and even more, as we know, since, you know, and she died 61 years ago, almost, and the the interest has never, never abated. Why I did this one is because that there are so many books that talk about her life, some a lot more factual than others, and and speculate about, you know, some of her personal associations and all that. And there are other books that use her as a, a a subject for takes on feminism or, you know, a lot of that kind of thing. I believe, you know, people have their own agendas and she's easily, uh, she's easy to project upon in that way. But with all of that, there have been very, very, very few works that have talked about her 
as a performing artist. And that for her was her treasured identity. She, she loved the fact that she had been working on her craft. She was never satisfied with it, but that was who she was, how she saw herself and how she wanted the world to see her. And uh, there have been almost no books. You know, the, they, they, talk, they refer to the movies, that sort of thing. But as far as really analyzing the performances, I can think of two other books that are devoted, as mine is, to the actual work and the legacy. And so I decided what it would be a good idea, since I had always, always loved Monroe, why not do what you could call a biography of her through her work, not through, you know, Joe DiMaggio or happy birthday, Mr. President or what, you know, any of that, but through the actual living proof that we have of what she did and how hard she worked at creating it. Well, one of the things you address right off in your book is the many misconceptions about Marilyn Monroe was a woman actress uh, and just generally about her life. Uh, there's obviously no shortage of source material, as we just talked about, um, but myths, half-truths, fabrications are all over the place. So I'm going to ask you two questions. The first is uh, about your research process and if you uncovered anything specifically of interest that really sh surprised you or shocked you. And secondly, how about uh, some tips on us digging through the garbage, so to speak, because there's so much out there. And, and to understand her as uh, a person, a woman, we you know need to navigate that. And hard, it's hard sometimes. Well, the second question first, there are several worthy biographies of her where that are more sober, that don't dwell as much in the sensation, as, but really do try to get to the, you know, the roots of, of who she was and how she lived and and also even how she died as much as that can be ascertained. So yeah, you do have an awful lot of garbage that you have to shovel through. If I can just share uh, the one that floored me when I was picking through stuff and it, what, there may be a book about it or several books even now, but I happened to run across it on a documentary that I ran across that started sober, seemed to start, you know, as a sober examination of some of her life. But then it turned out that the whole point of this was going to be to investigate her connection with Area 51 and UFOs. <laughs> and it was serious. It was almost like a bad parody, but it was Dead, you know, and they had these sober kind of appearing experts on that sort of thing. But it's good to know that that kind of junk is out there. It shows you how 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 open her life is to all this kind of stuff, and that something like that makes me redouble my effort to focus on what we have, the legacy, which is so tangible and provable and indisputable. Now, as far as what I might have wanted, uh, 
you know, there's there are many sources and a lot of them are sort of contradictory. So you really have to just keep digging and digging to find to find things out. And one of the good things about her is that basically at this point, anything that she touched or remotely came in contact with is reported and often reproduced on the internet. So I, I found some primary documents that were scanned, especially from early in her career when she had her first contract at 20th Century Fox. And you actually, there are actually memos that were found and were photographed and put online of like the, from Ben Lyon, the director of talent at Fox, directing that she will now be known not as Norma Jean Doherty, but as Marilyn Monroe. So the whole, so, and, and, and it puts the timeline in a little different position than it has been before. And if you've seen the book, you know that I opened with a what I try to be very meticulous timeline of what she did, because there are still many, many misconceptions about all that. And I was able to find, I think, enough documentation to come up with what seems to me to be really um, accurate about that. And how, you know, it's it becomes interesting when you see, like, sometimes the lag between when a movie was shot and when it was released and what she may have done in that in that time, that time span. So it gives you a good sense of how busy she was a lot of the time, which we don't always think about. But it also cuts to how hard she worked. She really worked, strove to be a dedicated actor. And seeing, you know, a lot of the timeline, which I was able to piece together from a lot of what was out there, uh, really, really shows that. And it shows what how serious she was about it, which people don't always realize. But that was what she wanted to be, and that was how she wanted to be seen. Well, that's something I really enjoyed. Was I mean, you're you're looking at her life through the lens of her work, and you stress that work ethic. And the timeline you spoke to is super helpful for someone like me who, you know, just really kind of has a general consumer American consumer uh, uh, background as far as Marilyn's concerned don't really know a lot about her. So that was a great way to start things off. It gave some great context. But you talk about that work ethic. You know, ever since she started, kind of fell into that first modeling career, you know, during the Second World War. And that ethic, which was laudable, in some cases, may have even led to some negative results, such as kind of falling in with some teachers and gurus that might have pushed her towards roles that they thought were suited for her. Maybe they weren't, uh, as far as her skill and temperament. But either way, I mean, she threw herself into her roles, no matter what they were. I'm curious, what do you think was the kind of acting that she most enjoyed doing? And then maybe the, the flip side of that, where do you think she was the most gifted? It's funny. I, I mentioned this in the book, in the movie, and it was one of the least favorite movies of hers. There's no business like show business. She sings an Irving Berlin song called After You Get What You Want. You don't want it. And a lot of that has <laughs> ties in not only with her personal life, but also her professional life, because she worked very, very hard in the first, you know, her career basically kind of splits down the middle, more or less. Her time in California and time in Hollywood 
which ends after she makes The Seven Year Itch, which is a film she fought very hard to do. And then she decides that she needs something completely different. So she abandons Hollywood, which was shocking at the time, and goes to New York, uh, studies uh, with Lee Strasberg uh, at the Actors Studio. Very, very serious intent. And she was never totally satisfied with any of her performances especially later on you know the ones that we think of that are so good seven year rich bus stop some like it hot the prince and the showgirl and some of that is because so many of her teachers really were trying to move her kept telling her that she was so gifted as a serious actress and we never really totally got, I feel, the the, the proof of that. You know, she did a, a several serious films, um, I think, with mixed results. But she was so instinctively and by training good as a comic actor. and But that was never thought by these mentor figures that that was, you know, that wasn't seen as being worthy. You know, as they say, death is easy, comedy is hard. And she had this knack for comedy that was kind of unparalleled, but she never thought that was as good as being, and in all seriousness, talked about being Lady Macbeth or that sort of thing. And then the other part, of the uh, the time in New York from then on was that uh, Lee Strasberg, who was a, a, a great, great acting teacher and uh, later in his life became a great film actor as well. If you've ever seen Godfather Part Two, he's he's astounding in that. But they kept convincing her that Hollywood was 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 not serving her and she should be doing serious work. And then along with that, as part of the actor's studio, a lot of the students of the actor's studio were encouraged to go into analysis. And a number of people did feel with Monroe that her reliance from that point on, on intense psychoanalysis may have done more harm than good. And you can see in some of the performances that it really deepens her approach to her craft and acting. But when you read and see about the the real problems she had just coping in life, it really stems more from that time. So it was certainly a sword that cut both ways, I believe. You mentioned Some Like It Hot, and that kind of brings me to my next question. So the AFI ranked uh, Some Like It Hot as the funniest movie ever made. Matt and I love it. It's one of our, our favorites that we talk about all the time. Jack Lemmon said about Marilyn Monroe that they liked each other, respected each other, got along great, but also said that by 1959, she was starting to grow afraid of the camera a little bit. So do you think this reclusion, I mean, this kind of ties into what you were just talking about, was a result of some some of that environment that she was in with you know, the, the analysis, or do you think it was a, a push and pull from professional or, or personal disappointments? I think a lot of it was her 
was intrinsically her. She came from a very difficult background. Her family had a, a, a long history of mental uh, issues. And a lot of the insecurity, which kind of lies in some of what Jack Lemon says, she always had. I was reading about when she was doing, um, and much, much earlier, the movie Clash by Night, she did where she has a supporting role and she's very good in it. She was so terrified of, of going on camera and working in this movie and kind of proving herself that before the camera would turn, she'd go throw up. And she was so nervous that she would break out in a rash and they weren't able to photograph her in even in black and white in, in, in rash. And her one of the most famous aspects of her as a working performer was her lateness, which was legendary. And that all came from anxiety and the different aspects of anxiety and being afraid to face and not feeling, uh, not always feeling that she was able to give the camera what it wanted, not the director, the camera, what it wanted. And the thing was that, unfortunately, you want to think that some people have get a better grip on their problems if they undergo intense therapy. You want to think that. But in her case, it looks like it may have, in some ways, had the opposite effect. Do you believe that maybe she had a touch of uh, is that imposter syndrome, right? Where you feel that you're, you know, you're just not as, as good as, you know, you think you should be, or that you always have to keep trying to prove yourself. I think that's, I think that is completely part of it. And then connected with that was, you know, she does, for example, the seven year itch and she's completely fantastic in it. She's wonderful in it, but she could not take any pleasure in that because right after she did it, she w went to New York and she was around people who kept telling her she should be doing worthwhile things, i.e. serious things. And so you're having your achievements being diminished by people you respect. Forget movie critics who often, you know, underrated her and underestimated her. But here are the people that she relies and respect, uh, respects, and they're telling her, you shouldn't be doing this. And then with the seven-year itch, when it opens, and it's all about the pictures of her standing on the subway grate with the, with the skirt flying up, and that's all seen as being demeaning. Well, I mean, surely it, it can be seen that way, but it also completely undercuts in her mind what she had achieved. And so how can one find really secure professional footing with all those different kind of things pulling on you? Well, and also the instability of the studio system. That was something that came out really with that timeline that you lead off with back and forth and loaned out and back here. And maybe the contract's going to get renewed. Maybe it's not. Who knows for how long? I mean, that just would be very, very unsettling. And Considering, you know, you, you don't have to read too far into your book. I'm about halfway through and I'm, I'm really enjoying it. Uh, and our hard, hard copies just arrived. This is going to go in a very respectable place on our bookshelf here. Really wonderful book uh, because 
you know, you focus on that work, the blood, sweat, and tears that she poured out on the stage, on the sound set. And the bummer about that is, you know, that public interest has always seemed to have centered on the tumultuous love life, the challenging personal life. And perhaps it's because there aren't enough, like you said, enough books out there that that look through the lens of her as an artist. But, you know, it's almost to the complete exclusion of her actual body of work, save for those few evergreen films and, you know, these timeless images of her on the subway grate, which I wonder if, you know, that would bring her pleasure knowing now, you know, that this has become one of the most iconic images of pop culture <laughs> history. But you focus on her skill set as a, as a singer, as a dancer, as an artist, and you talk about those films that are lesser known. So can you give us a couple that we may not have seen, maybe our audience hasn't seen, and that we definitely should see? Gosh, surely. Um, How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> all of them watch them all all of them no 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 not all of them there's there's there there's a little kennel of dogs in there too um but well let's start by mentioning the obvious um i i regard some like it hot as her best performance and best film and the afi was 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 right you know i mean i put duck soup alongside it but nevertheless you know <laughs> funniest film of all time and that's good um one of the films that was closest to her but she ended up being disappointed by it is uh the prince and the showgirl with Laurence olivier and it is as a film uh disappointing it's it, it's stodgy it's talky but Boy, is she good in it. And it's not a Marilyn Monroe performance as we think of her. And you really see there the the best results of the work she did with the study, with the actor studio and, and all that. She's, she's just really marvelous in it. Of course, it's also unnerving to read how, how difficult that performance was to capture for both her and for Olivier and boy, did they not get along at all. And that's a massive understatement, a really lesser known one. And it, it wouldn't take you much time to get through it is uh, she was in, she had a very small role in a very small part of a movie. And it was a five part movie based on stories by O. Henry. And if you if you run it's the title of the movie is O Henry's Full House, and if you run across it, you only have to watch the first nineteen minutes because she's in the first segment of it, and she only has one short scene, but it's with one of the great actors of all time, Charles Lawton, and he thinks she's a nice girl when he goes to proposition her because he wants to get in jail for the winter, so he has a warm place. And he thinks that she's a nice girl, and so he tries to propose it. But then he finds out that she is a lady of the evening. And the the layers the two of them go through. And her performance is just a little bit over one minute. But watch it, and you see her go through so many levels. And she's wonderful. It's the kind of thing that you can show to someone and say, you think you know what Marilyn Monroe can do look at this. And you can do it in just over a minute. So it's really easy. The one I mentioned earlier that she did on loan to RKO, uh, Clash by Night, that's probably the most, quote, normal 
character she ever played. And she's a healthy uh, young woman who works at a, a fish cannery in Monterey, California. And she has a boyfriend. And again, it's taking her in a direction that we don't expect with her. And she really, really, really does it well. So those would be a couple I would recommend. And I love her first starring film, Niagara, because it's a, it's a film noir, but it's in color and it's incredibly garish, uh, both in the color and what goes on, and especially with her. And she plays like one of the ultimate femme fatales in all of film noir. And boy, does she seize the opportunity. She she takes no prisoners in that one at all. And it's an immensely entertaining movie. And again, she's it's it's one of those things with her, and it, it happened pretty often. The surface of her performance is hot and 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 glittering and sometimes lurid and 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 sex, you know, all those things that you can't really it obscures what she's been doing underneath it. And she built her characters mainly from the inside out. So she thought about all these things and she constructs them, but she does it in a way that doesn't make it seem like, you know, people, the critics just thought she would just show up and, and be, you know, hot or sensational or whatever. And they didn't pay attention to the fact that she was building all these things and doing a much more assiduous job of that construction than most actors were in film at that time. I'm in fact almost all of them. So that that, that would be that would be my surf, my my surface uh introduction to to her work. And all about Eve, it's a classic and she, you know she has a supporting role but she's terrific in it. Yeah, it just seems like we're in a society that likes to build people up just to knock them down. And uh, it seems like she's just uh, the personification of that. I mean, I don't know how many people you'd ask uh, about Marilyn Monroe and they'd even know that she spent time at the actor's studio or trained or did anything. They probably think she just showed up on screen, looked good. And that was it because that's the perception that, that people have. Oh yeah. And the other thing is, you know, when I got the assignment, to do this book and I would tell people uh, I was working on a book on Marilyn Monroe. I don't know exactly what the percentage was, but it was more than 50. It would be more than half of the responses I would get would be, how do you think she died? That's the takeaway, you know, and it, but it's because she's always, in the public's, the larger public view, always been more about the sensation. And in some ways, there were times when she enjoyed the sensation she was causing. She certainly did when she entertained the troops in Korea, which she later would always refer to as the highlight of her life. But for the most part, when she was really trying to do serious things and like I said in the book, you, you'd really try to do good work and then you'd read a review that would focus mainly on your rear end. You know, what does that do to uh, someone who's really trying and being serious about it? And so, of course, with those kinds of things and the various 
circumstances around, you know, her last days and the end of her life. They've also built her up to be a victim. And, you know, that recent uh, blonde, of course, even though it was a uh, fictionalized take on her life, it really does propagate it because a lot of people see that and they think that's the way it really was. And that was a work of fiction. And I I actually couldn't get through the whole thing because by that point, I was so versed on the facts of her life that I was getting really annoyed <laughs> by watching all this fictionalization and realizing that people were going to take it seriously. Well, along those lines, that actually brings me to my next question uh, along the lines of biopics. So there's been a number, but Blonde is just the latest, if you want to call it a biopic. As you said, it's largely a work of a fiction, but people believe it to be true because, you know, lack of critical thinking, whatever it is. But a lot of that. Are there any biopics out there that that accurately represent her life or her career? Not much. The one that was interesting was what was it, 12 years ago? My Week with Marilyn. That was the name of it with Michelle Williams. And that was based on a really uh you know just very narrow segment of her life was when she was in England shooting the prince and the showgirl and that had i i think that michelle williams is a marvelous actress i don't always feel that she carried she captured monroe totally but you did get a feeling of a lot of the circumstances there much more then you know there there was there was an, a a sheen of authenticity about it and 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 candor that I appreciate it way 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 back in the early 1980s I believe it was there was a TV movie about Monroe's life she was played by Catherine Hicks who you know did a lot of TV later on and that really did have. It it was it was quite respectable, and uh, there were people that had worked with her that worked on this, and that it 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 didn't have an excessive amount of the sensationalism, and I you know I appreciated that, but other than that, I mean you know why they want to do it, but she is so, you know the most imitated person on the planet ends up being inimitable. So that's the thing. And they can't really capture her, but they're still going to always keep trying because the saga seems too irresistible for them to, you know, to leave it alone. Well, and as with so many other stars and, you know, beloved public figures that have passed away young, including one of her heroes, Jean Harlow, there's always that ongoing fascination. What might have been, what could have been? I remember growing up wondering how many other hit songs would Glenn Miller have made? <laughs> Sure. You know, Elvis, you know, Hendrix, all these people, you know, the 20, the 27 club. Uh, and it's obviously conjecture. You, you do speak to what a lot of her goals were and the things that she took pride in. But how do you think she has most influenced modern filmmaking? And, and is there one thing that maybe you can put your finger on that she you feel like she would be the most proud of looking back? I think she would be very pleased that people still like to watch her films and really appreciate her performances probably now more than they did when the films were new, 68, 
70 years ago, I think she would probably take an immense amount of satisfaction in that, even as she didn't always feel that the the performances turned out as well as she wanted them to. She said during her life that the films that turned out the best were, um, she thought the asphalt jungle, which she, again, she has a small part in, but she's very good. She thought that was the one that turned out the way she wanted. A lot of the others she didn't, including apparently some like it hot, go figure. But I think she would take an immense amount of pride ultimately in the fact that people are probably now respecting her as a creative artist in ways that they did not when she was alive. And I think that would mean a lot. And in all modesty, if my book does a little something to uh, keep that going, I'll be very happy because that was my intention with it to, you know, to give her the respect I think she deserves. Well, I was really pleased that all of us lovers of audiobooks are going to get a version of that. One more way for our listeners to consume this extremely well-researched work. And it'll be narrated by someone we know. I want you to tell us a little bit about that experience as as lovers of the spoken word talking to expensive microphones here. <laughs> uh, what was that process like? Uh, we chat a little bit off air about it, but I think it's phenomenal that, that you're narrating the book yourself. Well, thank you. And thank you for mentioning that. I had gotten word last fall when the book was being in the process of being uh, produced and printed and all that. And there was actually, if I can be a little cognizant of the times, uh, there was a slight delay with putting the book out because of supply chain issues involving paper. I never would have known that, but you know, that's what I was told. But then I got word that it was going to be an audio book. Uh, the company is Tantor Media and they produce, I think, one of the largest groups of audio books. I go to their website. It's astounding the thousands and thousands of audio books they do. And that they were going to do mine, which was incredibly exciting. You know, this is my sixth book, first one that's that's made it to, to, to this. And a couple of friends asked me, wow, uh, do you know who's going to read it? And I said, no. And they said, you think you might want to read it? And I had, had not even thought of that till then. And then I asked people at my publisher, you know, what did they think? And they passed it along to the to the company. And they said, sure, make an audition tape and we'll consider you. And I did, and they did, and I got word. And I I did use the argument that, you know, in audiobooks, there is kind of a special cachet when uh, a book is read by either a famous person or by its author. And I'm not a famous person, but I am an author. So, uh, you know, and I did it, you know, la actually last week, but I'm going back this week for retakes. Uh, it's an intense process. You're sitting in a, like a four by five cubicle with a table with a tablet on it, on a little stand. That's what I you read from. And you have the mic and, and the earphones and you see the window and you can kind of see the engineer out there, although the mic obscures most of his face because it's big. And um, it's very intense. And um, 
very rewarding and on the mouth and the the lips and teeth also quite tiring because by the end of the day you find that you're starting to slur words and so i'm going to be interested in seeing what i have and hearing what i have to retake but um it was it, it was a uh, a different thing for me and i wanted to try something different like that and i feel very fortunate that you know it worked out whole new career for you <laughs> i i doubt it i'm you know i'm one of the many 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 zillions of people in the world who is not totally happy with the sound of my own voice as i hear it but um, we know how you feel. You know, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Talk about um, imposter syndrome. <laughs> yeah, that too. Uh, but, you know, I, in this case, at least, I did kind of know what I was reading about. So that, that helps. And I, you know, there were a few passages with some where I made some kind of snarky remarks that were indeed quite fun reading. So, so you know, I was able to kind of take my... Uh, my audio skills to that area at very least well you sound great you sound great on our end of things what's the uh what's the production date on the or the release date for the audiobook i think it should be out sometime in may oh great it, they they do these things very fast their technicians are really really with it so i think the turnover is generally pretty good uh, I'll I'll know more when uh, presumably when I go in for retakes, but I think they do them pretty fast, and uh, I I hope you know people maybe like the sound of my voice better than sometimes I do, but we'll we'll have to see. <laughs> uh, I don't want to be like Marilyn Monroe who once read a critical review of a performance she gave. And started screaming. I, I know I'm, I'm hoping I won't be like that. <laughs> Before we let you go, uh, what is next for you after the audiobook? <laughs> Funny you should ask. Um, I'm actually in discussions with my editor, who's marvelous guy, Norman Hershey at Oxford University Press. And they, they have kind of re, Marilyn has kind of relaunched a series that they, they had wanted to resume at Oxford called An Opinionated Guide. And there are several others that are in the pipeline now, or, or some of them are completed, I believe, about other famous artists. Uh, I know there's one on Elizabeth Taylor coming out and Audrey Hepburn. And I had had a couple of ideas about doing it because I love working with Oxford and I love working with this editor. And Writing this book was a challenge, but it was also a lot of fun. And so I'm not going to say yet who it is, but there is most likely another uh, opinionated guide <laughs> about a very famous movie performer who people are extremely familiar with, who I hope can give, as I try to do with this one, somewhat of a different and respectful spin to. It's it's not Pauly Shore. Uh <laughs> So, so other than that, I'm not going to say, but uh, I promise when it's all done, I, I'd be more than happy to come back and, and talk with you about it. Uh, we'd love to have you back to talk about it. Yeah, and we'll uh, keep us updated and we'll we'll be the first to get the word out. Uh, we always enjoy having you on as a guest. And yeah, I got the book here in front of us on Marilyn Monroe, an opinionated guide from Oxford University Press. Everywhere fine books are sold. 
Richard, thanks so much for spending some time with us, and congratulations on the new book and, and the audiobook forthcoming. Thank you. Thank you. It is a pleasure always to speak to you, and, and uh, thanks for inviting me. Thank you again to our guest, Richard Barrios. His new book on Marilyn Monroe, An Opinionated Guide, is available now from Oxford University Press everywhere fine books are sold and linked in our show notes. And while you're book shopping, search up his other titles as well. We'll enjoy them all. And if you enjoyed episode 73, please make sure to follow us and share the podcast with a friend or two. You can find all the latest on HeilmanandHaver.com, along with all of our past episodes, stage reviews, and popular segments like Get to Know a Theater, In the Mix, and behind-the-scenes artist interviews. As always, thank you for supporting your local theater and for joining us here on Heilman & Haver.